0: Do you remember a couple of weeks ago you mentioned about how I printed off my scripts using already used paper? That I, I think, print, I think I print about print nothing off. less. Well, sometimes when you put the paper in wrongly, you get this.
1: Oh, yeah, that's not good. Oh,
0: that's a mess. <laughs> so, it's a shambles. So um, I'm going to have to, uh, yeah, try and uh, negotiate my way through. It's obviously my wife's fault because she put the latest... Group of paper in, and she didn't check it. I believe you're blaming a pregnant woman. No,
1: no, that is that is, that is absolutely low That's, that's Stalin-esque.
0: That's
2: the craziest thing she does under the circumstances, and you're getting away with it.
0: Yeah. So bear with me, all those who have written in emails.
1: Could you not have printed out again?
0: No, because she is currently um, uh, undertaking. <laughs> she is currently undertaking an interview of a prospective subordinate.
1: Ah, so I, so I cannot she, barge into the room. Gemma tumar Ferris is hiring.
0: She's hiring. She's hiring somebody who needs to be a go-getter.
1: Oh. So you that rules all, all four of us out.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Hang on. You wouldn't have a chance.
1: And, oh, yeah, and certainly course. not a go-getter. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> go-getter is very different thing. Uh, t- I, don't un-
1: I don't understand the go-getters. I don't understand what qualification they are studying for, because they seem to undertake quite a lot of relatively senior work, despite being in a training academy. It's
3: very true. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I received some news in the last couple of days from one of
2: my brothers that's making me think it's time to have more children.
3: They're bringing Super Ted back.
2: Super Ted is getting a
3: reboot. Yeah, Yeah, the trouble is it'll be Super Ted 2021. It'll be rubbish. I I don't know. It needs to be original or nothing.
1: We've been watching... Ed Ed is currently absolutely hooked on... um... Banana Man. No.
2: If they brought Banana Man back, I would definitely have more children. Impregnated. good Katie. enough excuse. Seriously? Left,
1: right and centre. Now, Ed's hooked on, th- on the Thunderbirds remake from the, I'm going to guess, late 2000s, I think. But it's... it's, it's Still it's,
3: puppets, are they? No, no, no. no it's all like,
1: it's like Animation, full-on yeah. computer CGI uh, stuff. It's genuinely quite good, but it's the least age-appropriate thing I can imagine. It's really... like He keeps saying, Daddy, Daddy, Thunderbird's too scary. And I say, well, do you want to put something else on? it?" he goes, no, me like this.
2: <laughs> well, and and Lady Penelope is voiced by Rosamund Pike, so there's yeah. something in it
1: for the dads. Absolutely. Oh. But we've also said, so for Christmas... as uh, Was it for Christmas? Yeah, for Christmas. Hugh bought uh, Ed, very kindly, a Juan Roman Recalme Bocca Juniors T-shirt, which he has, in the last couple of weeks, has started to fit him it was a little bit too big Hugh very sensibly going too large rather than yes, too small always. and Ed now demands every morning that that he wear his Bocca Juniors t-shirt but because he's in this this phase where he wants me to dress like him he wants us to be dressed the same <laughs> I, I am also having to wear my Bocca Juniors t-shirt <laughs> all of the time why do you just say no because <laughs> he's in charge Chinch he's well, It's
3: like a dog. If you let the dog rule the roost, you're screwed.
1: What I haven't mentioned is that Hector is also uh, demanding that we dress like him, but that's just all black, so it's very... You're going to wear
3: shorts for work in the future as well. What You can't... Do kids wear shorts to school anymore when they go to uh, big school? Oh, do yeah, they wear yeah. shorts? Do they wear shorts? Yeah. There's kids, at, there's kids at the boys'
1: school that wear shorts year yeah,
3: round. So so when Ed goes to school, <laughs> you have to wear to shorts do you.
1: I'm assuming the phase will not last forever, Chinch. Oh, that he won't that's, be like,
3: that's that's the foolishness of the uh, of what you're doing.
1: He won't, he won't get to like 27 and be like, Daddy, Daddy, wear this.
0: <laughs> really? Daddy, Daddy, wear these <laughs> knee-length charcoal. <laughs> this is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, 200, Stephen Wyeth, and 22, and Andy Hinchcliffe. For two, an incredibly niche reference for cricket fans there, which, as we've already established, isn't even all of us. In Richie Beno's honour, this is indeed SPM 222. Um, the food is rice pudding. Now, I bring Oof. this up for an important reason. Oh, I know how you feel about mashed potato.
1: More. I hate rice pudding. Rice pudding is even worse. Oh, I love
2: right, rice okay, so- when you say you've brought it up for a good reason, <laughs> is are you regurgitating well, your breakfast?
0: Funnily enough, if I was to... Um, put rice pudding within even the vicinity of my wife it would indeed be brought up and this is my point is there a dish in your lives that puts a crack between your relationships so aggressively that you cannot even eat it if the person is in the same room
1: i can't be in the same room as mashed potato or rice pudding but can kate okay kate Kate adores them both yes the thing thing we probably have most tension over is fish pie
3: Oh, fish pie! Have you fish had pie, Nikki's love- fish pie? Oh my god, you like it?
1: No, I can't, I can't stand it. Oh, what? Got oh mashed my potato gosh. on it! Drop mashed potato on it. Oh, fish pie! But even the concept, like uh, even the so sometimes you can you can do a fish pie with like like sh- shredded potato or sliced potato on top, and that that can be acceptable. But the whole kind of oven cooked fish in milk is just oh. grim. It's just a grim thing to eat.
3: Oh.
1: Oh, get me some smoked haddock. What I really want with this smoked haddock is a load of double cream on top of it. Nicky made a
3: Nikki made a fish pie so big last week that it lasted for six days, <laughs> and it was—I never got tired of it. I took it to a match. It's a soccer story, isn't it? I'll save it. I'll save. It. I took it <laughs> to a match and opened my electric lunchbox. That is—that is an electric lunchbox, not my trousers. And the smell <laughs> wafted towards Gary Weaver, and he nearly heaved. Divisive foods, let us know, at piece mate. Mm.
1: You can't if, be taking fish pie to a public... That is, that's that's All well, the guys do appalling. it now. Electric,
3: everyone takes the, 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 we have more conversations about what food we're putting in our electric lunchboxes than we do about the football.
1: What's an electric lunchbox?
3: Have a, have a wild guess.
1: No, but what does it do?
3: <laughs> uh, you plug it in and it heats your food up and keeps it warm so you can have hot food in the winter. It's that's amazing. Really,
0: that's it's, really clever. Is that yeah, from the same around... power source as your gilet?
3: uh it's not no it's a different I just cheapest chips as well off the internet but everybody I, I was really I got mine and took it in and said look guys cameramen sound guys I've got an electric lunchbox and they all went huh, we've had them for about a year and I, I just never know no one had ever told me but honestly Nicky's made kind of uh cottage pies and that ah oh, and you just put it on for an hour and a half Steve I'm telling you it is Look, if, a hot if meal want,
2: before a big match is just perfect. If you want to know the difference between TV and radio, when I saw Chinch recently at Ellen Road, he was working for Sky, I was working for Five Live. <laughs> Chinch produced his electric lunchbox with his pre-prepared <laughs> meal in it, ready for half-time. I had an apple and a packet of salt and vinegar hula hoops. <laughs>
0: Uh, so the food for this episode, was going to be rice pudding? It's turned into fish pie warmed by an electric lunchbox at football matches. The football oh. is... Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Ah, oh, we talked about some cracking topics. Can a brain
3: salivate? Because when I found out about this topic, my lobes just were just on fire. I've no idea what we're talking about now. Okay. I didn't think so.
0: It would appear that no media entity is allowed to let these days pass without some sort of reference to the COVID milestone or coronaversary, as I heard it dis- oh, described the other day. For awful. us in the UK, next week marks a year since the first lockdown and a lot of countries around the world have been going through similar grim recollections. It's all, also almost exactly 12 months, depending on when you're listening to this, since football shut down. As well, Back then, many discussions, some of which were had by us, took place to determine a route back for the game and how it would have to change to return. One year on, despite everything that's happened, or indeed, as we'll discuss, but maybe because of everything that's happened, football remains hostile to change, and not just because the Juventus chairman is apparently determined to air every idea he's ever come up with. So we're asking, given the lessons taught us during a year of the pandemic, can we expect football to change like ever? That's to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube as well. Michael Zakaim is in Brooklyn. Dear Jeff the Drunk, Hank the Drunk and Angry Dwarf, Crackhead Bob, and Ass Napkin Ed. Anybody familiar with those references? Uh, no.
3: It's a very no. American
0: thing. They are members of the Whack Pack from the Howard Stern show no. uh, on, on Sirius now, which, of course, is a regular haunt for Stephen Wyeth. Um, so, from the Whack Pack, from the Stephen Wyatt's colleague, Howard Stern. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to say that it's so good to have Chinch back, especially Aww. after his line, that relationship between the Turmeric Company and Swansea has been a long-time cumin. Sure, it's a cheap pun that he stole from another podcast, but his timing
1: Ah, there we go. <laughs>
0: Just just enough, just enough um, accent on that word to make sure that you understood that it was a written gag. Um, and delivery was spot on. Wishing you continued commercial and financial success with the pods, Michael Zake. Well, Michael, a significant development in that very vein is coming up shortly. Um, Duncan Geddes has been on before and has offered us a, a very good deal of fine content over the course of the years. But he's actually rather lucky to have his most recent correspondence included because it slanders me. Uh, and even worse, my musical bona fides. Dear Mozart, Mahler, Haydn and Bach, I'm sorry to say that when correcting Rory's rendition of the EastEnders intro, Hugh made an error himself, not ah. once, but twice. Ah. Ooh. He added an extra quaver before the final four semiquavers, changing the time signature from a standard 4-4 <laughs> to an exotic 9-8. Maybe as a BBC man, he's had privileged access to some sort of EastEnders jazz odyssey that the rest of us are unaware of. <laughs> All the best from Duncan. Now, Duncan, you are very welcome to get in touch at any time on any subject. However, this session must immediately be rejected. <laughs> Maybe it's because of Zoom or someone talking over me. But my rendition of the EastEnders drums was indeed rhythmically correct. It's simple. There's two, then three, then four. Admittedly, my version last week might not have necessarily been strictly click track perfect, but the number of Tom-Tom strikes cannot be disputed.
3: Thank you. Uh, he's not happy, is it? We all have to take a lot of grief, don't we? And we, we take it in the right manner. But when Hugh mm, gets mm, called mm, out, he's mm. not happy, is he? Look at his look at his, look at his stupid face.
1: He's <laughs> especially touchy about anything musical. Yeah, because he thinks
3: he's musical. The key really that's, it, no. that's it. No. That's it. That's
0: how to hurt him. Levels of insecurity <laughs> remain very high. Um <laughs> Now to matters undisputed by any member of the team, responses to last week's episode about how much football is too much football. Here's James Pemble in London, at which point I turn to my phone because I have two scripts printed on the same page, one over on top of the other. Hi to the three Musketeers and the one who has somehow missed out on doing the cinch advert. Um, Whilst listening to SPM 221, it made me realise that, in effect, I have two different football-related hobbies. The first is as a football fan who consumes an increasingly large amount of football and enjoys listening to nuanced debates, the kind of fan who regularly raises interesting XG stats on WhatsApp groups to various levels of engagement. I have a second hobby, which consists of going to watch Gillingham all over the country. In this hobby, I meet up with a group of friends at an unsociable hour in towns I would never normally visit and have generally less nuanced arguments over the course of a Saturday. If you had asked me in, say, April 2020, how I thought COVID would impact on these two hobbies, I would have reflected it would almost be good for my general football watching. With less social events to attend and working from home, I would be free to watch an amount of football I've been unable to since uni. I could probably follow the twists and turns of each club and watch the whole season fully play out, watching every minute. I also would have guessed that watching Gillingham remotely would be less enjoyable, and I would gradually lose interest as League One football naturally looks less appealing when watched via a screen and when watched alone, as opposed to being surrounded by my friends. However, in reality, watching Gillingham during lockdown has still been enjoyable. I still have an emotional connection. The football is probably better than I realised, and more than anything, with watch-alongs, etc., I have actually become much closer to my group of friends during lockdown, the one positive of COVID. Whereas it doesn't replicate the matchday experience, it is still the highlight of my week, and crucially, something I still care about, despite our seemingly never-ending mid-table mediocrity. Conversely, the amount of football I've watched alongside the pandemic has led, me, led to me watching a large amount of games, but not really properly consuming them. Whereas previously I would have based a Sunday or midweek around one game that really excited me, I now seemingly half-watch a lot of slightly contextless football. I think the lack of emotion from fans in the stadium actually matters more than I ever thought it did, which is why watching pre-pandemic games look so good now, and the games have now fallen into the everything is important, so suddenly nothing is trap. That is James in London. Not sure if I mentioned it, but I'm a Gillingham fan.
1: I think that thing about watching a lot of contextless football, half yeah. watching contextless football, apart from games that Chinch is commentating on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or Steve. Um, <laughs> I think that, that's probably, although Steve's mainly highlights. The other than the, the Bundesliga, in which, which Steve makes <laughs> it's entirely compelling. So the, the games that I work on are
2: mainly are mainly highlights of your week. Is that what? You mean? That's what.
1: I, that's exactly what I meant, Steve. Yeah. So if you take away Steve and Chinch and their contributions. I think that's probably, that probably is a phrase that perfectly sums up how a lot of people are watching football, is that you are sort of half paying attention to it. It is on you're vaguely conscious that you, you might as well have it on your TV or your laptop or whatever as you sort of do something else, even if that something else is talk about football on social media. And I actually wonder whether that's had a longer-lasting impact on kind of how we engage with football, like levels of patience and tolerance and... Yeah the kind of the nature of the discourse around football i think might change because people are now so used to kind of semi engaging with it without actually properly engaging with it
2: yeah i'm finding I've, I've got a general idea of the way that the 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 flow of the game has gone and and what's happened with the key moments any controversial moments the goals but if you ask me who'd had a good game mm. i would be less aware of somebody's you know overall impact on on the 90 minutes because you're just not engaged in the same
0: way yeah our original uh, buffalo mark cole has this entitled sports Ennui. Uh, dear gang of four firstly welcome back chinch my first thought about the complaints about daily football matches and the weariness of watching games was welcome to american sports i'm not totally familiar with other uk professional sports rugby cricket netball two of those just to annoy rory but i don't think uh, any have the rigor of major American sports. How would fans cope with the 80 game seasons of hockey and basketball or the 162 game, eight month long baseball season with games almost every night from April to October? And I wonder how you guys would deal with the slog of being a beat writer or broadcaster crisscrossing the continent, being in a different city or time zone for days at a time. As a non-practicing journalist, the horror stories I've heard from baseball writers have made me glad I was never a traveling sports writer. That's a a very good point uh, from Mark Cole. Phil Horn also writes on this subject, Dear Steve, Long-time listener, one-time contributor, rather tipsy SPM live attendee, love the pod. On the subject of the saturation of football coverage, can I offer the following thoughts? Thanks to our former friends in the EU, we have the benefit of choice when it comes to paying for a football game on the TV. This really only works if, like electricity, the product is always the same and always available, but whatever. Grumbling aside, what this multiplicity of providers has shown us is a difference in tone between the three current UK broadcasters. Aside from the recent successful introduction of the joyous Micah Richards, I find much of the two main broadcasters' coverage to be in the style of, OMG, what will happen if they lose this one? The pre- and post-match portions of the programme are full of lingering shots of players looking pensive and are often accompanied by dramatic musical scores. Maybe simply because it is a newer endeavour, Amazon seems to have a, isn't it nice to be watching a football match kind of outlook, which is altogether easier and more enjoyable to watch. Who knows how long this approach will last, but I for one enjoy it. And I know others who do as well. Ali McCoyist and John Champion chuckling along to a game together is also TV gold. After 25 years of constant football on the telly, we know that Liverpool against United is big. We know Pep v Klopp is a meeting of tactical something or other. And yes, we know Sean Dyche and Roy Hodgson are under pressure for this week's 3pm clash. Going to a match is fun. We love and miss meeting our friends at the station. The stop for a pint and a pint, speculating if so-and-so is back from injury, etc. As football is entertainment and escapism from things that actually matter, why in this time of all times do we still get shown the Premier League table with a four-point gap between Team A and Team B before one of them is even played that weekend, accompanied by the soundtrack that sounds like the trailer for a dystopian TV drama? This is no reflection on the work of you fine SBMers who do a good job of informing, educating, and entertaining. It is more the Mitchell and sketch positioning of each game and the puff flash, puff flash, bang over production, which can make watching a televised match so wearing. Uh, Viva the South Manchester Massive! That is from Phil in South Manchester.
1: I um, did the radio the other day and we were talking about Spurs and they're like mini revival. Over the last like five games before the North London Derby, that they beaten beaten Fulham narrowly and smashed Burnley and Palace, and that the whole kind of mood around around Spurs the coverage of Spurs. was, Spurs are back. They are back. Mourinho has changed. He's got Bale. He's got Son. He's got Kane. It's all at- it's all out attack. And I remember thinking at the time, it's really hard not not to kind of put myself on a pedestal in the slightest, but it's really hard when. But it's going to now. Yeah, a little bit the
2: <laughs> just uh, lift yourself lift yourself up a little bit rory just sit up straight there that's uh, better a bit there more imposing Jack that's yourself good. up that's it
1: the up oh, That's what you said yeah I'll take it yeah fine yeah uh the that <laughs> would be a long lockdown that's uh that's when we launch our only fans channel uh the, <laughs> the um the no So it's really hard when you when, you, when you're doing like well, it's not really punditry, but when you're on the radio or the TV or whatever, to be the person who says, hang on, we're all are we not all getting a bit carried away? And I, I didn't end up saying it on air, which is why I'm saying it now. But I remember in the in the 90s watching Gazetta, as as certainly two of you three would have done. Don't think Chinch did probably a better thing to do. What with being a football international and almost signing for AC Milan.
2: Yeah, you probably
3: watched Gazetta yeah. around about that time.
1: Yeah. Better find right. out who these people are. It who's this it? who's this Maldini? I can get any team ahead it? of him. Was that a kids' programme, or was it? Gazzetta was on at, what, 11 on a Saturday morning? And it was a roundup of the Italian football highlights. Uh,
3: I, was, so, I was winding myself for, up for a, a spectacular afternoon performance on the pitch.
1: Anyway, James Richards always, always used to kind of make the point that, that if, if like Juventus drew a game, the headlines on Tutor Sport or Corriere were always Juve increasing. It was always straight away, they drop points crisis. And it was kind of said mockingly, as though, aren't these Italians, aren't they taking this a bit too seriously? And in England at the time, when Chinch, when you were at, say, Everton or Wednesday, yeah. if if they'd have lost two in three, it which would have we been, did, regularly, which you, would, which you would have done frequently, it would not have been dressed up as a, as a crisis. No, no,
3: no, no, never, no.
1: It was just kind of, there, there was a little bit more, I don't want to get all sort of...
3: You were allowed to lose games back then.
1: Yeah, the, I, this isn't kind of nostalgicising for a lost little England, but I think there was more of a sense that the teams lost games and and big teams lost games and occasionally big teams lost big games and they were always, always given the chance to react. And it was probably four or five games without a win before it was kind of, all right, this is now a slump in form. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it been interesting over the last 20, 25 years watching England change to the point where I think we have now gone past the Italian high watermark of Juventus have drawn a game, therefore are in crisis, to if you, do, if you have like a bad spell in a game, you're in crisis. <laughs> yeah. Like if you ha- if you have like a bad fifteen minutes, it's well. There's questions to be answered about what happened there. If your pass completion rate drops below ninety three percent, you're kind of in a in a. In a mo- there's a player who's kind of suffering from a loss of confidence, and it's this this extraordinary, like I don't know, like this febrile, feverish way that we that we think about football now. And I, th- I think it's to do with with COVID, but it just seems to. Have, it, it, it's, it's lost all kind of tethering to reality that no saw one is that we prepared. We saw that with
3: Eric Dyer. I think Eric Dyer went through like two or three games where he didn't play particularly well. And Mourinho was saying, it's a crisis of confidence. And actually Eric Dyer came out and said, no, 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 I've just not played particularly well for two or three. I still know I can play. And that's yeah. a great example of it is suddenly everything's wrong or everything's right, isn't it? And it, it is. Maybe football was going that way anyway, but certainly because you're trying to create drama yeah. out of something like we say, if you're just watching football and it's just kind of pouring over you, you have to try and... Shine a light on on pretty what what's going to be a pretty average game. How do you do that in a season where we're seeing every single match? If you don't see every single game, then maybe you can try and again tell people what's going on. Pretty, but if you're seeing every single game from every single team, how do you create the drama? And you have but, to manufacture it.
1: But also, you, I think there's a shortage of things to talk about, and that's yeah. that's the other thing that we've not we've not had to deal with before. That that TV companies, radio stations, newspapers. When you have a you know, when you have a Saturday sports section, and there's only three games on the sat, four games on the Saturday, you have to kind of give a bit of weight to each of those games. When you have to build up for forty five minutes to the the twelve thirty kickoff of Southampton against Brighton, and it's not actually that that interesting. But you need to find a, a way to, to sell it to the potential audience. You have to. That, that... I'm
3: surprised you've got Southampton Brighton. Normally you're, you're Palace Burnley. That's I'm trying why to... why is Southampton Brighton? I'm trying, so trying to fresh try just to a recent try... game that was in your in burned into your memory. <laughs> I'm trying
1: to freshen it up. I think it's unfair <laughs> on Palace and Burnley. The you know, I think the, the, it is incumbent on you know, we are we are all in the business of selling the product for, for footballers. That's what keeps us in a job. it's it, that's why it's difficult to be the person who says, mm, We're not taking this all a bit too seriously, or we're we not going a bit overboard on. On this narrative of of kind of redemption or whatever it was about Spurs, that that we are there is an there is an impulse to sell the product. And I think maybe one of the things that has worn thin this year is the selling of that product. It's the sense that you are being sold and this this is exciting. And it's a great point. Like the dramatic music. Is it not really? all those slow-mo shots of warm-ups. Come on. It's a football, it's just another football match.
3: Yeah, but if you've done warm-up after warm-up, if you were then, say, a producer, or a dre- you've got to try and find something else to do, something yeah. different to try and make it different from the game that was just on 15 minutes before. That's why it happens. I agree with you, but that's why it happens.
2: Rory, if you go out and, and buy a watch, or you need a new watch... And you could get we, the we
0: famously know that Rory does not wear a watch. Wear a watch. Well, I've got, my, I've so got my phone. Why would I wear he's, a
2: watch? He's, Rory has decided he does now need a watch. <laughs> and he's not going to spend 15 quid on one of those Casio ones. He's going to he's going to go Rolex. I can't oh, read. Oh yeah, yeah. But 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 can't, can't, can't,
1: read, can't read a clock face. Who's teaching me how to read a clock face? This, that, that's it's, not an it's, an it's an analog.
2: It's an analogue. It's not important to the story, Rory, because even <laughs> if it's the cheapest Rolex, you're not going to say, Hey guys, do you like my new watch? You yeah. know, got me a Rolex you're going to sell it to us because you have spent an awful lot of money on your Rolex and lots of other people, well, actually they don't, but other people might have a Rolex, but you're still going to go big on your Rolex. And that's kind of what the TV companies are doing that they are selling the game mm. on the basis that this is the only game that people are going to watch this weekend. Because if they, if they sell it on the basis of this is the fourth or fifth game
3: that somebody's watched, yeah, and it's really difficult to pitch that.
1: We know you're a bit bored, but come on, stick with us. There's nothing else Can on. Can
3: you imagine if you said to the pundits, "Just, just act honestly. This is the fourth game of the day." <laughs> They'd just be lying on the floor, wouldn't they, asleep? And clearly, really, they've got. Come on, come on, we have got to raise the levels. More Red Bull, more Red Bull. Let's go. And, and it's
2: happened. why
1: I enjoyed it so much when um, after after Liverpool beat Le- Leipzig in the Champions League, when Michael Owen said that he didn't think German football was all that on the channel that shows the German <laughs> football. <laughs>
0: And finally, uh, for this part of the show, uh, from Adam Skaggs, uh, who says, a heartfelt and I hope not too cloying note of thanks. Hugh, Stephen, Rory and Andy. Though a first-time correspondent is a dedicated listener who, as of this very weekend, has enjoyed each and every edition of your fine podcast, I've picked up on your criteria for selecting correspondents to share on the show, including incisive insight or thought-provoking question about the current state of world football preceded by the obligatory compliment or obsequious endearment. Sadly, this correspondence lacks these twin requirements, void as it is of the requisite football observation or query for your consideration. Instead, and with your indulgence, allow me to simply share my gratitude and a sincerely heartfelt felt appreciation for your outstanding podcast like a correspondent on the most recent SPM episode i first listened to the show in late 2019 in my case initially tuning in just before christmas for spm 158 soon I weekly made sure to keep room in my podcast schedule and became an enthusiastic listener. As 2020 descended into social distancing and isolation, the podcast became an invaluable companion on the runs that kept me sane in locked down New York City. Like many listeners before me, I decided it was time to wind the clock back all the way to SPM one, ensuring that I would never wonder again about Buffalo etymology or miss even a moment of out of context Reacher. And so my journey began. As we celebrate, he says using quote marks, a year of the pandemic, I reflect on and must share how important SPM has been in helping me through these last 12 months. I have laughed out loud while running through usually bare free city streets. Chinch's strength in sharing how he has dealt with personal struggles in turn gave me strength, and the shared sense of both loss and mutual support when Rory lost his brother meant the world in this trying time. As someone who turned 50 in the last year and who'd planned to celebrate it last spring at the North London Derby, a trip sadly but predictably canceled, the tributes and tales shared in honor of the Hinchcliffe Jubilee brought countless smiles to my face. So it seemed a fitting capstone to the year that on this NLD weekend, something about which as a Spurs supporter, I have no further comment, I pressed play on my final as yet unlistened to episode, in this case, SPM 157. What do we mean by great? And it seemed fitting that as the show began, the pod announced Rory's well-deserved recognition as winner of the Football Supporters Federation Writer of the Year. And that as the episode ended, I reached the indisputable conclusion that Set Menu is truly one of the all-time podcast greats. Many thanks for everything. Do keep up the good work. And once it is safe again, please revisit SPM 100 with another live show at which your many fans can join you and convey their gratitude in person. Do stay safe and very best regards. That's from Adam Skaggs. A couple of points on that, Adam. Um, Firstly, thank you. That is why we do it. Secondly, usually bear free city streets. Thirdly, uh, Shane, uh, those people who voted for the FSA Awards this year didn't see fit to agree with your assessment on our podcast. Um, fourthly, another live show is an excellent idea and anybody who wants to completely subsidise it, do let us know. And finally, five, do ask forgiveness, everybody apart from Adam, uh, for including this rather self-indulgent, if lovely and very articulate uh, email. correspondence of any kind, particularly that kind, to menu at gmail.com. Should we, seeing as loads
1: of our correspondents from America, should we not do a live show in America?
0: Again, Ooh, back to the subsidisation point. Would we have definite. to do a
3: tour, though? Just to be fair to everyone, probably to make it worth it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: Cinch, could Chinch not subsidise
3: this? Uh,
0: yeah. You could probably sub.
3: <laughs> you could, you could subsidise a meal. What's a the uh, What's the sterling dollar exchange rate at the moment? Um, plummeting. About plummeting, one point one point five one point six. I don't think it's even
1: that. Like one point two. I'll have
3: to. I'll have to speak to my financial guru. Who apparently is not very up how on many, exchange rates. How, <laughs> yes. how many kidneys do you need to survive?
1: Still looking <laughs> so at exchange one.
3: rates from the early 2000s. <laughs> I could sell a kidney for us to go on tour. How about that?
0: Uh, now, this is exciting. Um, stand by for four middle-aged, middle-class, prudish Englishmen talk about their nether regions. Because support for Set Piece Menu is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Uh, now we've all <laughs> been sent the excellently named Lawnmower 3.0 in a box where you open the lid, it says your balls will thank you. One of us has made it very clear over the years that he's very happy to discuss his preference for going commando. So Chinch, uh, you have been anointed the expert who will tell us about how best to groom our groins. Thank you very much indeed. That is the product being tested right there. Chinch, how, how important is it to have um, freedom from well, matting down there?
3: It wasn't It wasn't something that was passed on uh, from my father or my brothers. Uh, to me, I was the youngest of, of, of three boys. Uh, it's just something that really I, I took on at a very early age, probably 16, 17. I was quite a hairy chap. And uh, I. there's two key features I felt that kind of kept me feeling fresh and looking great. That's moisturising the face regularly twice a day. And that's why twice I look so beautiful twice a day. Twice a day, right? You see, that's where you're going wrong. Who's got the time? That's why you look so old. (laughs) Moisturised twice a day. And also, yeah, I I think uh, around Woodford, I am known as as snooker balls. And that is because of how people just know. People just know. But when you don't wear underpants, it's very important. You don't want anything snagging. So that's why I've always, 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 for a good, oh, 35 years... Kept myself clean as a whistle.
0: Which is why, Chinch, you are the perfect recipient of the Lawnmower 3.0 with its new ceramic blade to reduce accidents. There's even a light to show you where you're going. The battery will last 90 minutes. You can shave in the shower. It's waterproof. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide and has just launched in the UK. Chinch, you are one of the first recipients of the Lawnmower 3.0, as we all are. Join the movement for all your below-the-waist grooming needs. And here is the most important part. You get 20% off and free delivery with the code SPM at manscaped.com. SPM at manscaped.com.
3: It is. It does make a bit. I've been not using a rusty razor blade for many, many years. But uh, yeah, it's been a razor in the shower for me. But it's, it's worked an absolute dream. But this product is extraordinary. The waterproof aspect is a, it's a game changer.
0: The motor is 7,000 RPM, since you would have noticed, and uses quiet stroke technology. Uh, which is all... for some reason. Uh, there is a charging dock available as well, which is essential for chinch if you're doing it at least three or four times a day. Uh, so get yours now, get 20% off it as well, and free delivery with the code SPM at manscaped.com. That's 20% <laughs> off with free delivery <laughs> at manscaped.com. Use the code SPM, your balls, and indeed, we. Well, will thank you because of course, you know, you buy it, it makes us look good and that will help us in the future. So thank you very much indeed. Next week, we'll find out who else has used the product. Now, I was watching an episode of the NBC sitcom Superstore on Netflix in the UK recently and a character dismissively mocked another's attempt to start a written apology delivered to the staff in the break room with a famous quote as being so middle school book report. So then ladies and gentlemen, it was Albert Einstein who said, <laughs> The measure of intelligence is the ability to change. This completely hackneyed way of introducing a topic for discussion is evidence that I am willing to change and therefore it follows that, despite the use of said device. I am intelligent, but is football we are now approaching the one year anniversary of lockdown in the UK a time which heralded nay forced change upon football but one which also shone the brightest spotlight yet on how any change can only come at the behest of a disparate group of stakeholders that appear to regard self-interest as the driving force of any decision to support that change and now with the experience of everything that has come in the past 12 months is change considered so anathema to a sport that has plenty of people within it open to change but only change that suits them and sometimes them alone? I'm going to have to change the word change in the rest of the script, I think. And yet, should we be wary of those attempting to use this time of relative upheaval to force through, um, looks at thesaurus, a metamorphosis that is taking advantage of these uncertain times? So today we are asking, we want football to change, but how likely is that given the lessons of the pandemic? Is football intelligent enough to change?
1: Most importantly, Hugh, I, I discovered Superstore on Netflix about six weeks to eight. Two months ago, and binged binged all five series that are available on Netflix within like three weeks because it hit that perfect. I don't know if this is known, but I've got a real soft spot for rom coms. That is my beyond football. My main interest in life is rom coms. And how are we finding this out what now? Sort, what do you not know half
0: that? Do you not know uh, that?
1: I love rom rom coms. You
3: think we, I think we would have remembered that if you said that previously?
1: My favorite footballer of all time, as is well known, is, is Juan Román Riquelme. But I, I prefer the, the oeuvre of Catherine Heidel to anything Juan, Juan Román Riquelme has ever done, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Now, Superstore kind of ticks all my boxes It is a masterclass of that slow burn romance that you see in The Office, that you see in Parks and Rec, all that stuff.
0: Don't ruin it. I'm only on season two.
1: You'll know what I mean, though. It is masterfully done. But I couldn't find anybody who'd watched it. And I was genuinely texting people to, to say, have you seen it? I, I had this sort of overwhelming urge to talk to people about it. Why did I not text you? you were the obvious choice
0: we sit on either side of the divide regarding anything involving mashed potato or milk but we mm. sit very much on the same side of the divide when it comes to our televisual habits
1: yeah i'm disappointed steve, in myself steve. is this we making will... you
3: want to go and watch it steve cuz i'm they're just going on about something that's i just i don't think i will i think it's actually putting me off watching it
2: well, firstly, I want to know how Rory is consuming all 10 live Premier League games a weekend and binge-watching yeah. stuff on Netflix. And all that time that we, we collectively thought he was thinking, considering what was going in his next piece for the New York Times. I was when, watching. When he's quiet on WhatsApp, we, we give him
1: his space because he's an intellectual. The, I'm actually, the, the truth I'm has come to 20... the four. I'm actually watching 27 Dresses, again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Again. But also, Rory, you are finding the time to conjure up a piece on Andrea Agnelli, which you've already mentioned uh, on this podcast, which is uh, the, very much the bedrock to our conversation today. And yeah. there will be those listening who are wondering when we're going to get to it.
1: Yeah. So I think what's interesting to put it in the context of the of the year of the pandemic. And like you say, back back in March last year, we, we among others, did lots of things on kind of how football might change, how this this sort of sudden abrupt stopping in in kind of the endless rolling on of football might might lead to some sort of drastic, relatively drastic or, or at least seismic shift in the way that the game is structured or whatever. And I think what's amazing is that basically everything's carrying on exactly as before. No one seems to have thought, actually, we need, do, we, we need to do, we might need to do something different in the future. And all the conversations that are happening about how football could change are the ones that would have happened before the pandemic anyway. So Agnelli, who is, I saw him described the other day as like a useful idiot. I think that's probably a little bit harsh on Agnelli. He is a smart and urbane and successful businessman. He's he's not thick, like he's not he's not stupid, but he is very much the voice of Juventus and as chairman of Juventus, and I think he's president of Juventus, chairman of the European Clubs Association. And the ECA in theory represents, I think, 260 clubs across Europe, but it does seem to, to operate largely in the interests of the, the grand old houses of the continental game. Um and they have, they've kind of pushed through the reform of the Champions League. So they're adopting the Swiss model, which I think is actually a strange name to give it, given that to American sensibilities, the structure would not look that alien. Americans, I think, would automatically understand what they're trying to do with the Champions League from 2024. It's an uneven league system, followed by a knockout competition. It is the way, there's, there's some differences, but there's, it's basically the way American sports are structured.
2: Is this is it is this is that going to happen, Rory? Is there anything? Is there anything? like of, it. it seems no. Like there's no sense that somebody is going to stick their head above the parapet and say, oh, "Not sure about this." Seems a no. Bit I think necessary.
1: I think there is a there is. Then this is what we'll come to. I think there is an acceptance within most of the most of the clubs that the Champions League format, as it stands, could be refreshed. Which I think is probably not wrong. The way they're going about fixing it to me isn't right, but. I can understand why they think the Champions League format as it stands could do with a bit of an overhaul. Um, But Agnelli then went further and and kind of in his kind of Stuart Pearson from the thick of it moment, which was my main reason for writing about him I wanted to make that comparison. I didn't really have an argument beyond that. I just wanted to get the video in. He kind of came up with not allowing elite clubs to to buy each other's players, which is a ridiculous idea. Uh, He wants legacy places in the Champions League. So if, you, if, if AC Milan finished sixth in Serie A, they might get in on the basis of past performance. And he also suggested selling the rights to the last 15 minutes of games, which as someone pointed out to me on Twitter is what the World Service used to do. They'd go to the last half an hour of the, of the commentary on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday rather than doing the whole game. And it's interesting that, that when Agnelli pitched the last 15-minute idea, the immediate reaction was howling derision. But that's actually not a bad idea. There's no there's no reason not to do that as long as people can still watch the full game if they want. What like, where's the harm in saying we, we'll charge you two quid to watch the last 15 minutes? I don't yeah, think that the
0: rejection of that is an idea that you would only be able to watch the last 15 minutes and you wouldn't be able to watch the first 75.
1: Yeah, or it's this is an, an an idea from Andrea Agnelli and therefore is in the interest of the super club of Juventus and the super clubs. Therefore, we don't like it. And I think this is where football has a real problem because the changes Agnelli, Agnelli and his the the kind of his peers who were behind him kind of what's the word, urging him on, aren't good changes. They're not changes that, that solve football pro- football's problems or changes that would improve the spectacle. They do not seem to grasp what it is that, that fans want from football. But football could do with changing in quite a lot of ways. And the danger is that because everyone is acting out of self-interest and the elite particularly are always accused of acting out of self-interest, which they are, no more than anybody else, but they are, um, every change that is suggested is rejected. And I think that's really dangerous because at some point someone's going to come up with ideas for changes that are good. For example, Gianni Infantino is, is suggesting an African Super League. Now, an African Super League isn't a bad idea at all. It's, it would be difficult to piece together. There'd be uh, concerns in terms of kind of the effect on climate change and the, you know, the cost of running it. But if you look throughout, through African football, it, you can probably name 20 or 30 teams who would be obvious candidates to be in, a, be in an African super League, And if you then bond all the various TV deals from all those various countries together, you might find that you could not compete with the Premier League, but you could maybe get a lead that is as good as Holland or Belgium or Portugal. That's not impossible. It would mean that African kids could stay in, you know, Cameroonian kids could stay in Cameroon and play for Canon Yaoundé for two or three years to develop if they had proper facilities, play in a high-quality lead and prove themselves effectively at home and then make them move to Europe rather than the current system, which allows all the money basically to go to Europe. The, the problem is that Infantino suggesting it, and that's bad for, because Infantino doesn't always think to think, think things through and he is not his motives are not pure. But it also means that the idea, which is inherently not a bad one, is not discussed. There is this kind of bedrock of people who just reject it straight away And that's not healthy for a sport that does need to change.
0: But but there is a sense, isn't there, particularly with the African Super League idea, which I I think has got a lot of buy-in and will be something that progresses a lot quicker than mm-hmm. anybody trying to change anything in Europe or within individual leagues in Europe is that there are fewer stakeholders, less self-interest, and therefore some sort of some sort of uh, middle ground or some sort of way forward will be found. And the and the issue that we've got is we've mentioned it before is is Agnelli attempting to move the Overton window? Is he attempting to suggest things that are so crazily progressive that actually he's doing it to find the middle ground by way of compromise that actually he wanted all along? Is he clever enough? Is he intelligent enough to be playing the long game in that regard? Or is he this kind of madcap guy who just throws everything at the wall and sees what sticks? Because if we are talking a year on from a period of great self-interest where nobody could change in the way that they needed to, until eventually it became very clear that financially they had to make some changes to just get football back uh, on the rails. Why have we not got to this point in March of 2021 that we have learned about everything that has happened in the last 12 months, to the extent that we understand that there is necessary change and that there will be those people like Agnelli who might come with crazy ideas, but at least they need to be put on upon a table and discussed within the context of what has just happened in the last year, or as Stephen made in a point, um, as we were discussing this on our WhatsApp group, in fact, the f- the normal that w- has been created over the course of the last twelve years is a dangerous context in which to try and make long term decisions about what to change about football.
2: Yeah, and, and we're we're seeing that in other aspects of our life as well. That's not just a that, that's not a, a solely football thing. That's a really interesting thought, Hugh. That uh, that, that perhaps it, that there's a long game being played by those who oversee the elite clubs because that would be out of keeping with how they go about a majority. Of their business because they're only ever thinking of the next cycle in terms of how much money can we generate from the next cycle of TV rights, so the next cycle of of Champions League format, etc. And and if if they were being more clever, then they would surely do what journalists following Manchester United used to do with Alex Ferguson for European games, which was to Filter questions that they really wanted asking down to the the, the press that followed Manchester United's opponents because he was much more likely to answer them than if they came from a, a familiar voice who was was probing him twice a week anyway. So if Andrea and Agnelli was was boxing clever, maybe he'd get Edwin van der Sar at Ajax to propose some of these changes because if they were being proposed by this supposedly forward-thinking. Club who's constantly planning for the future and, and thinking about development, then people might take a little bit more notice of them or take those points more seriously if they were if they were coming from from an Ajax or even from a Porto. And the thing that strikes me as is really odd about the whole thing, and, and that Juventus Porto game is a, is a is a perfect example. Is that however much there is, you can understand the self the the self serving interests of the elite clubs. The thing that gives the champions league its greatest shunt forward amongst casual observers is that sort of game and i cannot understand whilst i can understand why they are talking about how can we guarantee our position in this competition and get for ourselves a great the greatest possible slice of the pie they must also surely be able to recognise that there is little to be gained from disenfranchising the sort of clubs who occasionally come along and cause a shock, because that is what ultimately gives the competition its credibility.
1: Well, also there's there's a there's a slight sh- sort of short sightedness in 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 underestimating the appeal of teams like Porto. That I, obviously, in a in a Champions League sense, Porto are, are now minnows financially, but Porto will have a, millions and millions of fans around the world. There, Porto like Ajax have an appeal, and I think that I think that the the big clubs from the big TV markets kind of forget that a little bit. That, that, that there is a real, I mean, Ajax getting to the semi final of the Champions League in 2019, and you know, within within a minute of the final was an incredibly compelling story that m- tens of millions of people bought into because it's Ajax, because the the football watching public is not just obsessed with, with the here and the now and the kind of who's the most famous. There is an awareness of what Ajax mean, and there is an excitement at seeing this team kind of suddenly come together and be able to take on Europe in the same way as, I guess, our generation. One of the things that I, I bemoan the loss of from the Champions League is the idea that a Red Star Belgrade or a Stour Bucharest might come along. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there is this amazing team that you know nothing about. If you speak to a lot of Liverpool players from the, from the early 80s, they'll tell you that Dino Tbilisi, who I think beat them in the 1982 Cup Winners' Cup or something, you know, beat them in some European semi-final. They'll tell, tell you that they, they were the best team that they ever played. Because the technical level was so high and I guess they, they didn't know anything about them. So suddenly you had these magicians on the pitch at Anfield and they were like, what, what the hell is this? And that kind of mystery and wonder we've talked about before is really important to European football. Ajax had a little bit of that in 2019, that this this sense of, wow, this is amazing. This is fresh. This is new. Who's Frankie de Jong? Who's Matthias de Licht? This yeah. is, that is kind yeah. of one of the things that lends football. It's magic. And I think they don't understand that. And the other thing, is, as I said before, that they don't seem to get is that, the the champions league group stage is a little bit boring it can be a little bit boring we all find we all complain a lot in in the autumn that this is not quite as dramatic as it should be but the payoff for that is that generally the knockout rounds are brilliant and that's where the champions league gets its its allure there are things you could do to make the group stage more exciting and then they're, they're mainly to do with messing about with the seeding that's that's how you get a more exciting group stage and that's also how you get a more egalitarian competition what they're trying to do now is ensure that the is basically just inflate it. So there's far more games. So the big teams play each other more often. You can probably spin it a little bit to say there'll be more games that are meaningful. That might be true. I'm not quite sure how you quantify that. That depends surely on, on what you define as meaningful.
2: But it feels like towards the end of the, the Swiss league structure, there, there'd be a whole host of meaningless games. It would, yeah. that would seem a- almost unavoidable. It, that, that it's all, that's almost like the, the, the deal you're making with the devil.
0: And, when, and this is, this the, mean, is... the meaningfulness would surely then come from a meeting between those two teams who have provided the more meaningful group games again in the knockout yeah. stage. So you, you'd find them playing each other maybe two or three or four times, which you would have had that meaningful game in the knockout stage anyway. Yeah. So, what, so, what difference does it make if you're just trying to add games to both? To, and, and it goes back to our conversation that we had earlier about the number of games that are on television in the Premier League at the moment. Each time you do that, it doesn't necessarily make it more engaging. On every yeah. occasion,
1: and the other thing that they're missing, I think, is that there's going to be a point in this in this system where you've got big clubs, you've got Juventus and Real Madrid, who by game week fourteen have got nothing to play for and are out of the competition. And the the, the interesting thing about all the all the elite clubs is that they, they seem to assume that they will always be the elite. We've talked about it before. Someone has to be West Brom. That, that if you have a super lead or or the the Swiss lead model, the Swiss model. You're going to have two. You're basically condemning a handful of the super clubs to to not looking a lot like super clubs because they'll be also ran, and I don't think that's in their interest. Where at least at least in the current model, which as I say is not perfect, they mostly make it through, they mostly knock each other out, they get that sort of sense of of occasion and and specialness and rarity, and it kind of allows them all to maintain their their elite status. Whereas I, I do wonder whether you know if I don't know if Arsenal. Finished like bottom of of the Swiss lead model three years in a row, then Arsenal is suddenly a laughing stock, and it's obvious that they're not a that they're not a, an elite you know an elite team in the same way as Barcelona or whoever are or Manchester City or Bayern Munich, and that that is a real problem for them. They, they just do not that none of them none of them seem able to kind of comprehend.
3: It's, it seems to be a, a conversation that's going round and round, and with all these. Clubs have been around a long time with people involved in these clubs have been around for a long time, not just the, the giant clubs, the, the smaller clubs as well. Wouldn't we have got to an answer by now if there was an answer to be found? How can you strike a balance domestically and in European competitions that everybody, genuinely everybody, including the clubs, big and small, fans, viewers, how, how can you do that? And wouldn't we have found something by now? Or is what we've been through over the last 12 months going to prompt finding something that works for everybody. Because seemingly listen to all these different points of view. There doesn't seem to be any logical. Somebody has to suffer for somebody else to benefit. And if we're saying, well, everything has to be done. And all these ideas seem to come from the people, the presidents of of these giant clubs. If someone in the championship in England came up with an idea, it's just not going to be ever listened to, is it? So you're always talking about the big clubs coming up with these ideas that surely naturally you're going to think, well, you're mainly saying this because it's gonna benefit you and not benefit football as a whole. So how on earth do you strike the balance? Is it impossible to strike the balance to keep everybody happy? And I mean, fans and viewers, as well as clubs and players.
0: That's the good point because there's a conflict, is there not, between this sense that why change? Because surely we would have found the best way of doing things over the course of 150 years of professional football. We would have understood how best to operate and structure these, these competitions formats. But then the conflict between that and the, the, the desire to try and think about how better it could be done and to have the, the intelligence and the, the wherewithal and the ability to kind of think about how best to proceed, that, that's the conflict. Because in between those, those two groups of people are those who are just saying whichever, whichever path you follow, that is wrong because you are doing it for self-interest. Yeah.
1: So, so there is a problem in that self-interest is is seen as a disqualifying motivation that if you're doing something out of self-interest, hence Anjali suggesting selling the last 15 minutes of games, and it's, oh, it's a bad idea because it's self-interest. But it's not a bad idea. It's a, it's a perfect, I mean, it's... But if he comes know. up
3: with an idea that genuinely isn't self-interest, it's presumed well, that it is because no, no, no. he's saying it and who's, who he's no, in charge of.
1: Not even that. It is a self-interested idea. Of course mm. it is. He wants to make more money. That's fine. But it doesn't mean it's a bad idea because it's it's in the interest of Juventus and the super clubs, just as if there was a, an idea from the lower leagues or from the smaller nations. It wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea, but it would still be rooted in self-interest. There's two problems. One is that everybody acts with self-interest. So as soon as these ideas come up, you see this time this time around it was Villa and Palace led the objections to the idea of an expanded Champions League on the grounds that it would damage the League Cup, the EFL, and and the Premier League. Now you think, well, if Palace cares so much about the League Cup, why do they always play a weakened team and get knocked out in it? That would be that that suggests that they're not exactly walking their walking their talk. The EFL, they've, the, the current model damages the EFL too. Palace don't seem to care about that particularly. More, far more important is the fact that it damages Crystal Palace because they the teams who finish 8th to 16th in the Premier League fairly consistently benefit massively from the current status quo because they get all the Premier League money, whilst, as the elite clubs in the Premier League would say, not actually creating a lot of value. A lot of the value is driven by the elite clubs. That's That's undeniable. That's who attracts the viewers. That's who who the TV companies pay to, to show the, the teams in eighth to 16th are just along for the ride. And that's great. Not, not, it's not criticism, but they, they are held up as though they are the, they like bastions of sport and integrity, but they're just as self-interested mm-hmm. as the elite. They just want to protect what they've got. Mm-hmm. And the other problem is, and this is, this is something that I think in, in England particularly isn't understood. And because it's not understood in, in England is maybe not reflected a lot in the English language media generally is that, how all this stuff manifests in England is very different to how it manifests on the continent because everyone in England, certainly in the Premier League, is inured to the effects of kind of economic change by the Premier League's TV deals. So Crystal Palace make more money than AC Milan for finishing 14th in the Premier League and playing, you know, Christian Benteke who never scores any goals up front. Whereas in Europe, the, the effect is much more, is much more pernicious and much more complex, complicated because you not only have the issue of the current Champions League model destabilizes leads within, the, within their own leads. You have Olympiakos winning 10 titles in a row in Greece and Bate Borisov winning 12 in a row in Belarus and Slavia Prague dominant in the Czech Republic because they've ha- they've got access to Champions League money. So that has a destabilizing effect on competitive balance within leads, And then you have the, the destabilizing effect of competitive competitive balance between the leads. So the big five leads are are tearing clear of holland and belgium and portugal and not to mention poland and romania and bulgaria all these other countries who can't compete with the tv deals so there's lots of people for whom the current status quo doesn't work the only people who are advocating for change are the big clubs who want to make it worse and the people resisting the change are the teams who finish eighth to 16th in the premier league who want nothing to happen at all and they basically get to say well everybody else just has to go hang no one is capable of thinking there are lots and lots of different problems that we need to address. So let's find a way to address them because there is a, this block who don't want any change. And the answer to what Chin said, which is really important, is there isn't a solution in which nobody suffers. The change will always damage the people who benefit from the current status quo. And in this case, that's the, that is basically Crystal Palace. How much of this talk
2: from the ECA, and the the fact that it's you, the, the clubs that you hear from it's you know Juventus and Agnelli seem to be leading the way on this occasion but it's it's often other elite clubs from outside of England who are, are very vocal in terms of this call for for reform in in terms of the Champions League how much of it is being driven by the amount of money there is in the Premier
1: League
2: 99% so should they not be looking at ways that they can better monetize their domestic competitions rather than worrying about how they can get more money or more guaranteed participation in, in Europe. Because the Premier League have come up with a formula and look, the English language is a big factor in its ability to sell its wares so successfully around the world. But Serie A has huge global prestige. So does the Bundesliga. So does La Liga. So there must be ways in which they can look a little bit more inwardly, in terms of the the potentially fantastic products that they have there at their disposal that they could monetize better. We, we're very, you know, the, the Premier. Not we are the Premier League is has done a, done brilliantly and is very fortunate at the way that it can. Monopolise the the global TV rights for domestic football, but that shouldn't be to the detriment of European competition because that is Juventus, Bayern Munich, PSG's best way of making more money. There's, you know, and French football is in the is in the midst of a huge crisis in terms of the investment in in that competition and the money available from from TV rights with with one of its major partners having having pulled out. So that is a huge factor for, for, for big clubs in France. But is there is there not a better solution for them to try and make their domestic products more competitive up against the Premier League than to worry about how they can potentially damage continental competition in the hope that it might Give them a little bit more of a, a financial lift because however much money they make they manage to make out of the Champions League, you, you may still end up in a situation where they can't compete financially with Crystal Palace or Aston Villa.
1: I think the I think the bitter risk is that no matter how much money they make out of the Champions League, if the English clubs are involved, they will always you will have the six the four, five, six richest will always be the English clubs as long as they have access to the Premier League and the Champions League. So, it's problem, in
2: many ways, it, there's a risk it would maintain that status yeah. quo, just just there'd be even more money at stake.
1: The yeah. The other problem is that. What is in the interest of the big clubs in 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 the four major continental European leagues is not the same as necessarily what's in the interest of the leagues themselves, and that's so. Javier Tebas, who runs La Liga, is an is the most ardent opposition voice to a super league. Does he wants to maintain Real Madrid and Barcelona in La Liga? That's what that's what that's what's in his interest. You are right that they. I think that the the leads themselves haven't done enough to try and close that gap. They. To an extent, I don't think they can, partly to the language and partly to the Premier League got there first. But there there are ways in which you think they could build audiences across the world much more easily than they currently do. And in Italy in particular, you kind of think, well, you need to work on the backdrop as well. You need to make it look more modern. You need to improve the infrastructure. You need to improve the, the way that the games are presented. It's little touches. I'm sure I've said this before, but in the Premier League, the microphones by the side of the pitch point outwards to the stands when there are fans there so that you can hear the noise and it feels like a spectacle. In Italy, they point inwards so you can hear the players. That's not what people want. People want spectacle. We've learned that over the last year. So it's, it's little touches like that that would, would enable them to produce, produce a better televisual product. And it would, in time, perhaps raise the, right, the rights value of their leads. But I think their thinking, the big club's thinking, is that is A, too slow and B, too ineffective to actually close the gap. And the risk for Juve and, and the others is that they are in an arms race that they cannot win but they're expected to compete in. And that is from Andrea Aronnelli's point of view, from a pure business point of view, that's not practical. You can't, they want steadier, they want higher incomes, but crucially I think they want steadier incomes.
0: So let's put it back into the context of the last year, um, because a year ago we were having the conversation about self-interest being something that, that, that is not something you could bridge it's completely impossible to have these two interested, so two self-interested parties, and there were many more than two, um, finding some sort of consensus. But Steve mentions the, the TV deal in France. We had an email over the last few weeks uh, from a listener called Kieran Manning who, who suggested that, that that French TV deal was a, is a bit of a harbinger. Is the bubble potentially about to burst? And that follows directly as a result of what's happened with MediaPro in France. But will it take some sort of... If, if the pandemic is not a catastrophic reason enough to find consensus amongst warring, self-interested parties. What kind of catastrophe, and I'm not talking about loss of life or anything like that, what kind of football financial catastrophe would it take to potentially find that consensus, which I think we all agree needs to be found to some degree because change, we're not one of those people, not one of groups of people who say there's no, no, there's nothing to change here. There is, there is change to be found. But are we only going to get some sort of sensible change when something even worse happens to the finances of football? Because clearly 12 months of a pandemic is not enough. And who, because there must be
2: those in the background who control the money, who is questioning whether or not what some of these clubs who are falling short of their, their targets, our ambitions, as Juventus have done again this season in the Champions League, who is not urging caution about whether we want to give those in control of the money, even more of it. Hmm. At at what point do you stop giving this group of people tens of millions of pounds to squander when they've they've not done a huge amount to prove that they can be reliable with the resources that they currently have at their disposal?
0: And those resources at the moment allow for things like the Ajax situation of that that story of 2019, you you almost cottoned onto that story from a wider context too late because you weren't able to enjoy it. Because as soon as that happened to Ajax, those players that you mentioned, Matthias de Ligt and Frankie de Jong were bought by two of those massive elite European clubs, the extent that therefore that Ajax story was gone. So actually one of, Andrea Agnelli's points about not buying from other elite clubs might be a good one in that regard because at least you get another couple of years of people like De Jong and Ligt, De Ligt at, at, at Ajax if you consider them to be one of the elite clubs that Agnelli uh, is talking about. So, Chinch, if you've, if you've got a group of players who play for a Dinamo Tbilisi in the early 80s or De Jong and De Ligt for Ajax, would the competition not benefit from at least having them at those clubs for a little bit longer so prior to them being captured by Juventus and, and Barcelona and not actually to any great extent furthering their stories to what we had told at, at Ajax. De Jong's playing, but he's, he's not necessarily a superstar as they might have expected. That, that is a wider Barcelona issue. De Ligt doesn't always play for Juventus, even though he's a tremendously talented centre-back. So these, these stories are almost being taken and then diluted because hmm. they're all going to these big clubs.
3: Yeah, but it was, it was always the case, certainly when I came through That the, the plan was always to probably stay where you were to develop as Roy was saying about the African players keep them in their home country their their home clubs so they can develop and then maybe move on from there but the problem is again if you have talented young players with agents and money available it, it isn't it simply isn't it's just foolish to think that that we're going to sit tight for two or three years when agents, the players themselves in terms of their mentality, they might think you've got to strike while the iron is hot and if someone's willing to pay £50 million pounds for a 19, 20 year old, the clubs who are, who have those players have to think seriously about that and the players as well and agents, you can see why these things happen but in an ideal world playing is the very best thing for players but if you're going to, if you're considered at 19, 20 to be a potential superstar playing the, the best teams in the Champions League at 23, aren't you better off playing or being around players at those giant clubs? So again, you're you're kind of the flow into that type of football is there rather than having to step from one to the other. But it's all driven by money once again. And maybe the player's mentality is, yes, I have a, a good year or two at Ajax. And then maybe the players themselves are saying, right, where, where do I go from here? Because this financially and in terms of what you can win, domestically, yes, you might win stuff. But if you're looking to, to win things, Champions Leagues, you're presumably not going to do that. It might happen at Ajax, but it's unlikely. But it's all driven by, again, I think external forces, why, why players, young players in particular, move on. But ultimately it is about whether they play and they can go and not play. And then you're thinking, well, if you're 21 and struggling to get into Barcelona's team, okay, you're training with great players but you need to be out on the pitch playing. So I understand that, yes, I would say if if my son was in that position, I'd be saying, well, playing is the best thing. I found that was the most beneficial thing. I'd love to think that you're going to be playing every week, somewhere that you're happy and comfortable. But then suddenly a club comes in with £50 million pounds for you. What what do you do? What do you do? It's very difficult to say. I think it's virtually impossible to say, no, we're going to sit tight, thank you, and, and play out another couple of years. Because ultimately the club won't
1: want that. I think increasingly, if you look at like Erling Haaland, you have the sense that there is a very clearly mapped out process for his career. And it's what George Mendes does with his clients as well. He sort of says, this is your roadmap. I, this is where I see you going mm-hmm. if you fulfill your potential. And I think that increasingly is how players think that you have to take the, the right steps at the right time. You have to maximize your financial potential. Because even if you're Erling Haaland, you'll have earned you know, X million so far in your career. But if Erling Haaland you know, does his ACL tomorrow, yeah. then that could be him done. That's yeah. the, and that, that is how players think. That you If you're an 18-year-old kid, you're going to take them... To me, as a, as a journalist... It...
3: I'm not sure the players think that, Rory.
1: Until it happened to
3: me, you always think mm. you're going to go on forever and everything's going to be great. And then suddenly you do your ACL and then lying in a hospital bed, you think, ah, it can, yeah. it can end very, very quickly. Like I went through, not saying it's on the same level, far from it. But I don't think players think like that. But agents, maybe agents will, that's yeah. the way that they, and maybe family members as well, looking around. Because a 19-year-old who just loves playing football, no matter how intelligent you are, you do not see the end of your career. You do not yeah. plan like that. Maybe the odd the odd player will do, but I guarantee I certainly didn't do. Maybe I did. Again, I was maybe different. I did maybe see 32 when I was 16, 17. Mm. A lot of them don't. They just love playing and they let other people around them make. So again, that's why. Again, you could get injured. I'm going to make the decision for you or encourage you to make a certain decision. And to
1: be, to be fair, agents and, and family members should be thinking like that. That yeah. is, it's yeah. always, dressed, again, that's always dressed up as, well, it's, it's greedy, self-interested agents. But that's exactly what an agent should be thinking is, right, I need to make sure that my client, whatever happens in their career, gets the money they, they need, or as much of the money they need, in case, you know, the worst case scenario happens. So in Erlin Haaland's case, you know, his dad, I think, has done a lot of the work, but Mina Raiol is his agent, and they seem to, you know, they picked Salzburg from Molder because they thought, right, that is the best way to get him early access to the Champions League. They then went to Dortmund rather than Leipzig, say, or any of the English clubs, because they thought this is the way to get him playing in a major league as regularly as possible um, in a, in a and taking a step, I think, partly away from the Red Bull model, showing that you can do it somewhere else. By all accounts, in 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 the way in their thinking, the next step is Spain, because that then leaves you open, I guess, for the really big money transfer to the Premier League from Real Madrid. Now, that might fall down because Real Madrid might not have the money to sign, to sign Erling Haaland this, this year, but... I think that is where they think they are thinking of taking him if he goes this summer, because that is their is their plan, and I I don't think there's any way there's any other alternative for players to think that they have to try and maximise how much money they earn, they have to try and maximise their experiences. The the fact that the that the financial reality of European football has kind of flipped on its head a little bit, and it now feels as though the Premier League is the apex predator to Real Madrid and Barcelona rather than vice versa, is an interesting shift, but the players. I think we'll we'll actually like say we'll just they have to go where the money is. Mm-hmm.
2: And that brings me back to the, I know it's idealistic to think about the clubs being more sensible with the money that they've got rather than trying to get more of it. And by all means everybody scream at your podcast provider for me being ridiculous. But you look at the the Ajax situation, you know, you look at De Jong, Delict, Donny van der Beek. Who has benefited the most from those transfers? Well, the players have. Because Ajax, yes, have come into an awful lot of money, but it's broken up a team that might have been capable of going on to win the Champions League. And in terms of the clubs that they have joined, for a variety of reasons, they have not managed to get the greatest benefit out of the vast investment that they made. So maybe the responsibility needs to come back to these major clubs to think a little bit more carefully about what they're doing with what they have at their disposal, rather than demanding even greater resources to, to try and cover up for their mistakes.
0: And for the third week in a row, let's mention the football industrial complex. And if you're trying to change anything from within something so huge and overbearing, it might be, uh, yes, a case of banging your head against a brick wall, because um, the football industrial complex is exactly that. Uh, it is time for Nevermind Jackanory, what a soccer story. This is Andy Tells the Tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel-worthy details removed.
3: I know you guys don't have great memories, but you, you must. I think it was last week. Was it Chris, who's the press officer at Brentford? He sent in a really brilliant email about I think it was post-match interviews and how people are selected for that. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, I, I didn't realise I was going to be seeing it, but I did Blackburn. I should have known because it was Blackburn-Brentford. It should have been a bit of a giveaway, really. <laughs> but then when I thought, oh, my God, oh my god, there's Chris. And he, I've spoken to him so many times. He's been so helpful with, with, with information that he's given me. He's absolutely brilliant. But I, I said to him, I, got, I managed to have kind of five minutes with him. I said, that email you sent was it was brilliant, but also it was really appreciated from having someone on the inside being able to talk about it. And his little bespectacled face, oh, it lit up. It, did, You know, him being press officer at Brentford meant nothing <laughs> to the fact that the set piece menu guy absolutely <laughs> adored him. And he was just saying, oh, I was a bit worried about doing it, but he's such a lovely lad who does his job brilliantly as well. And he, he said, oh, did, was it OK? I said more than OK. But again, getting someone's inside information, how you see it as well. We talk about things on the outside all the time and we have an idea about what's going on. To hear it from you in the way that you described it was absolutely brilliant. But it's little fact. We've got to think of that when we're saying all the stuff that we're saying. I know certainly when I talk, it can upset a lot of people and they'll be scowling when they're listening. But there's a lot of people smiling out there. And just to see chris's face when i said that email was brilliant so again encourage people to send in their emails because i'm never going to read them you will but send them in because i hear they are fascinating and if i come across you in my in my public life which i'm i'm bound to do my bouncers might kind of push you <laughs> away jab you away with a with a baton but if you get close enough and i can tell you and remember the emails that you send me your face can light up like Chris at Brentford.
0: And perhaps uh, w- when you do send in those emails, I'll manage to uh, print them off a little bit more successfully rather than uh, like I did. For the- yeah, it's complete complete gobbledygook. And I'll do-, do my very best to read them uh, very clearly as was told that story by Chinch very, very clearly. A nice little ditty to remind us Remind us of uh, a soccer story. If you have any, then send them to setpiecemenu at gmail.com or your correspondence, to that email address. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Andy, and Rory, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed.
2: It's all been very serious recently. We need a, we need a football mm. joy, don't we? Or what's the best type of goal kind of conversation. Yeah, yeah. We've been dragged down by the unwieldy nature of the last 12 months.
0: Uh, Here's something that we've done uh, previously, which was uh, a lot of fun. Um, I I meant to mention it earlier, but I forgot. Uh, you remember last week we were talking about Erling Haaland um, perhaps being generated to exact some sort of multi-generational revenge on Haaland 2.0, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, this this uh, came in from James Bezik. It's just a short little email. Dear Terry, Barry, Gary and Ron Dixon, read last week's pre-pod talk of intergenerational revenge and Roy Keen and Erling Haaland. As it happens, a talented, arty friend of mine called Dan has a comic series named The S***. <laughs> houses, a.k.a. The Atterveldt. I'm not telling you sure whether he's actually called The Atavels so or he's just doing that for our benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Whereby he scribbles the mad adventures of an unwholesome rabble featuring Sergio Ramos, Howard Schumacher, El Duf Ed al. As Big Sam barks orders and downs pints of wine from the dugout. Anyway, one of his excellent comic scribbles features the very premise of intergenerational revenge, including the same characters, yet with a slightly different narrative. I'll let the pictures tell the tale, he says, sending it to a podcast, which of course is an audio format. Keep up the excellent podding. That's from James. Uh, so we will put that on, uh, on Twitter. And um, it's at houses on Instagram. Oh no, sorry, it's at the houses uh, on Instagram. And um, if you can't go on Twitter or to Instagram, here is the Easter egg at the end of the episode. Uh, it's slightly different because Roy Keane's son goes and nobbles Erling Haaland and brings back a bone of that he has broken off Erling Haaland to Roy Keane. It sounds way more violent than it actually is. So yeah, if if you're thinking about something fun over the next course of the next few weeks, maybe something like that would be a good idea. Mm -hmm.
2: Further proof that we rarely have a unique thought between us.